Hello, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How how are you? For anyone who was here before, the air conditioning in this room can sometimes sometimes we have a conversation about it um, with facilities. But now, because of some previous weeks. Um, situations I have the number like on speed dial on my phone so I just gave them a little call I was going to do it over the mic hello this is Margaret calling but so hopefully I mean it doesn't seem too bad in here right now but just so that you know where they're checking to make sure it should be on okay how is everyone Are you tired kind of hot and kind of tired in a good way yeah you're like hot no but tired yes okay well happy Wednesday I hope that you've had some good writing time and are enjoying your classes and are enjoying Iowa City um, a reminder for those of you who are here in an Iowa summer writing festival class this week that your open mic is tonight at Beatology from 7 p.m. to 8:30 p.m. and that'll be fun okay for now I'm happy we are all here does anyone have any questions I, I just suddenly realized like yes dear uh-huh you guys have a lot of people here this week I would probably get there like between I'd get there at like 645 and you probably will not be alone and I just told the entire room to do so <laughs> so um, the staff person I may stop by tonight Joanna will be there and she gets there at 630 so um, but there are 25 spaces You'll, you guys will get to read it'll be good okay um, for now, I am very happy that we are all here for what I suspect will be an illuminating and entertaining hour with Charles Holdefer. Charles is the author of a nonfiction book, George Saunders' Pastoralia, a collection of short stories entitled Dick Cheney in Shorts, and four novels. Thank you, Charles, for leading us today in Making and Breaking Taboos. And I think I'm on. Does this seem to be audible for you? I think so. All right, thank you. I hope you're having a good week. Um, and I, I suspect in a group like this, most of you uh, are familiar with the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and with the uh, exploits of the king and the duke and, and perhaps the particular episode of the royal nonsuch. Uh, let me reassure you, you will see nothing like that today. Uh, but uh, I did actually have a bit of an agitated morning. It, it's... Um, not good form to begin with an apology, but and it's all my fault, but there was an issue of a, of a misplaced thumb drive. Uh, but I've been able to put something together, and, you know, the show must go on, and l let's go for a ride. Um, so uh, taboos are, you know, a vast subject, and uh, I'm certainly not going to settle them today, but uh, I'm going to revolve this talk around just three personal stories, which in their own way are kind of trivial perhaps, but they also evoke other larger issues, okay? Uh, so I'll just tell the stories, then I'll return to each one. Story number one. When I was a teenager uh, growing up in South Central Iowa, I had a part-time job at a radio station, uh, a 500-watt radio station with a big antenna in a cornfield. And uh, on weekends, uh, on Saturday, I mainly worked weekends. On Saturdays, I played top 40 music. And on Sundays, uh, I generally played uh, religious programming, broadcasts. We had like one live feed, but most of the time I would 
and using the technology of the era, I would uh, plug in a, a cassette tape of a pastor's message. And sometimes uh, there would be instructions of the introductory music before the tape started. So I'd cue a record, play the music, fade it out, punch the tape, and the pastor would start talking. That was the way it worked. Uh, there was one particular uh, speaker named Reverend Ray Mayhew, and Reverend Ray, so there were specific instructions, play this song on this album, and then do Reverend Ray's message. So I, I did that, but then one Sunday morning I did that, and the record began to skip. And so that's awkward, but uh, so I quickly turned it down and punched the, punched the tape, and so the show went on as, as it was supposed to. Come around the next week, I thought, well, I don't want to play that record. It's going to skip. So what to do? I'll just uh, I'll go up to the next track, because this was a vinyl on the next album, because it was a religious album. I played that, and I can't remember, honestly, how many weeks. I did that for a while. And then one day, and it wasn't on a Sunday, but it was another day when I was at the station, and there's this guy um, standing there. This is a guy with a jacket and, and a tie holding a record. And it was the Reverend Ray. I'd never seen him before, actually. And he very politely, very politely explained to me that, well, there's a problem with the music because the song I had put on uh, had instrumental. And his particular, uh, and the first song, which skipped, was actually an a cappella version of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which I remember this kind of stirring a cappella version of that. But uh, the instrumental, that was, that was not good. Uh, actually, I had broken a taboo that that was not consistent with the precepts of his denomination. And so he politely gave me another record uh, to play in its place. And you have to remember, I was a teenager, not terribly mature, and my first reaction was, oh, give me a break. And thinking things like, well, what I could do, I could imagine cueing uh, Rolling Stone's Jumping Black Flash, <laughs> those driving chords, and now it's Reverend Ray. So, so, but that, that was like a certain situation, a confrontation with a taboo, and a real uh, temptation to, uh, to break it. Second anecdote, second story. Um, later, uh, I um, wrote a, a novel called, I think this is probably cued there, yeah, I wrote a novel called uh, The Contractor, which is a, a book about various things, but it, a lot of it is set on a black site, and the main character is an interrogator for the United States, and it, it is a book which addresses the U.S. use of torture in the so-called War on Terror. Uh, and uh, so uh, that, that's a lot of what the book is about. And uh, I was uh, going to... Um, give a reading uh, here at Prairie Lights, actually. And uh, before the reading, I received an email, I just, which included this message. Uh, instructions. Uh, please stay clear of the following swear words. Funt, cut, shit, tits, piss, motherfucker, cocksucker. Sorry, but the, that's the FCC rules at this time. Now, it's true, for instance, that some of these words do appear in the, in the book because sometimes people talk like that, some of the characters. And actually, for myself, I don't tend to use a lot of profanity. I grew up in a kind of family where it could be uh, 95 degrees and my father would be working in the machine shed and he would hit his hand with a hammer and he would say, oh, piffle. Okay, so, so that, that wasn't really a part of, but nonetheless, nonetheless, it's, uh, it's a book which respects a lot of the conventions of, of realistic fiction, and so some of these words do appear, and, uh, and it was not lost on me that the fact that, um, you know, I could get more in, more in trouble, or, or that would be more acceptable, and not 
legally actionable for me to read a scene of torture than for me to read a bit of dialogue where someone uses one of those words. You know? So Prairie Lights invites me. What do I do? What do I say? Okay. Third story. Third story. Then I'll come back to the first. Third story. Last summer, teaching at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, there was a guy in my writing group had an interesting project going on, but it was about, it involved, um, it, it was set in New York and it involved uh, the Albanian mafia, about which I don't know anything, but it was, it did, uh, and this fellow was not Albanian, he did not speak Albanian, but that was uh, an important element in his story, and he, had, and he told me that, uh, and he told the group, they said, I'm not violating a confidence or anything, that uh, a, a writer person uh, back in New York had told him that, well, that's cultural appropriation. You shouldn't write about that. And he, so he like, asked me, well, you know, can I, can I write about the Albanian mafia? Okay. So that's, uh, that's, another, that's another question. So what do I say? What do I say? Now, uh, let's go back to the first story. I think that's the easy one. I think that's the easy one. Uh, okay, what, f in regard to the Reverend Ray, I did not, and I'm glad I did not, uh, disrespect uh, his uh, instructions about what music to play uh, for, for his program. Because after all, that was his work. That was his uh, heart and soul that he was putting into that work. And, and for me to have uh, played something else, played something even mocking, would have been a sort of immature prank at best, you know, I, I would have gotten kind of a kick out of it, but, but that, that, that doesn't take you very far. I mean, this was all, you know, this was also in an era uh, when uh, we had a wire service. You, you, I know you've probably seen those in films, the wire service where it pumps out these long sheets of paper with, with news and you have a number of bells and uh, at the top of the hour with the news and the weather and stuff. But if there's a breaking story, three bells, four bells, five bells is like a bigger story. And I was told by my employer, you know, that a 10 bell story would be like the president's assassinated or there's a war. And, and I remember thinking in my dumb teenage way that, gee, wouldn't that be cool if I were here and that happened? Well, no, that would not be cool. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the way you can, for the sake of just a little thrill or a frisson, you can, you can, uh, think that way. But it's, it's better, it's better uh, to, uh, I think, be respectful for so of someone else's work. Uh, the second example uh, regarding prairie lights, regarding prairie lights, uh, that was a little bit more complicated, I think, because uh, that was some of my own work. Uh, and on the other hand, that was some of my own work uh, where I was being invited by actually a very friendly venue someone who is being the host. And what am I going to do? What am I going to spit in the soup of, of, of my host? And uh, although I was not entirely, so I don't censor what was read, but I go around it. I go around it. Now, this is a compromise uh, that I didn't find, you know, entirely satisfying in the context, because uh, this was also uh, at a time when, uh, and I don't live in the United States anymore, and it really did strike me how much language is policed. When I would come over uh, and uh, see on the airplane, I, I have, I've noticed this less lately, but just watching the movie, this film has been edited for, television, for, radio, for airplane viewing. Edited, that means censored. Then I pick up my car at the uh, 
at the rental agency, which is marked as a previously owned vehicle. Oh, you mean a used car? Uh, and then, you know, this was, the story did involve things about what is often called prisoner abuse or enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, which were euphemisms for torture, which is, uh, I think, a more accurate word. Uh, so, so that kind of stuff was uh, a bit getting under my skin. But on the other hand, uh, it's, there is a difference, a distinction to be made between uh, altering your own work and how it might get mediated. And some of those things can be beyond your control. I do think you have to be faithful to your own work. If some bookstore said, we won't carry your book unless you remove certain words or certain ideas, uh, then I would be more inclined to say, no, thank you, I'd rather not do business with you. Uh, but uh, if in terms of a mediation, and also this was not coming from Perry Lights, it was coming from busybodies at the FCC, uh, then again, it would have been, I think, inappropriate for me to uh, really push that very much. And there are, also ways, there are also ways to get around it, and these are not entirely satisfactory, but you know, it goes back to some of you who are probably familiar with Lenny Bruce, uh, and how uh, you can actually debunk some of these codes pretty easily. I mean, some of them, you know, he was a comedian with the things of, uh, uh, at a in a more censorious age, doing poems like, uh, roses are red and ready for plucking, she's 16 and ready for high school. <laughs> now, I didn't say anything objectionable. Now, if you thought something, that's your problem. You're the one with the dirty mind. Okay, so these things are uh, socially, this, these things are part of the, uh, our social fabric. And we're always negotiating the taboos. And taboos do exist for a reason. I mean, taboos can exist to protect the weak. Uh, we have certain interactions with, uh, with children which are governed by taboos, and I think quite sensibly, uh, about there's a power differential, and uh, taboos can have a purpose. Taboos can also be used, though, to insulate and protect the powerful. And it can enable the powerful to abuse. And that's also a real risk. And so we are, we are constantly negotiating that. And so like uh, for just a little anecdotal thing for a later book, um, yeah, called Back in the Game. Actually, this is my Iowa book. Uh, as, and I was happy with the cover because you, you don't usually get um, much say in the cover art. Uh, and this is a book in which one of the part of the setting involves the, the problem of, of CAFOs, you know, the concentrated animal uh, feeding facilities where, you know, you have a hog lot in Iowa which uh, produces as much sewage as a city of 100,000 people. Uh, but it's not regulated the same way. And that's why, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to give you a big spiel here about the environment, but uh, I, when I grew up, Iowa was a much cleaner state. Now it's a rather dirty state. Uh, it doesn't look that way, but in terms of its streams and, and the industry which the ag is putting out, uh, there are problems there. And uh, so, hog sewage or, you know, the word shit, which farmers do use, uh, figures in the book. And so in order to get around in the reading, I said, okay, every time a certain word comes up, I'm going to replace it with rose petals. Uh, and so, and just the absurdity of, of replacing rose petals for the other word actually drives it home, I think, in that Lenny Bruce sort of way about the poem, at least in a small way. I'm not making a direct comparison, of course. Uh, and uh, even like for the cover art, I did ask the guy, uh, I, I was happy with what I did, I said, since a lot of the book is about actually shit, uh, could you do it so that the cover would communicate that, but a person wouldn't know till after they read it that that 
the book was that color or that kind of uh, uh, package, and uh, I, was, I was fairly happy, happy with the job he did. Now, uh, let me make a, a transition here, though, from these personal anecdotes, which can be a bit trivial, to the more general situation, uh, to remind ourselves of, of uh, what we've inherited, uh, and, and it's an ongoing process. God knows we certainly haven't figured everything out. Um, and I'll, I will refer particularly to the, English, the context of the English-speaking world, because historical amnesia is a risky thing, and uh, not least because it is a, the margin of liberty which we do have, and putting aside the FCC and things like that, is a fairly recent development. Now, there are lots of examples, uh, you know, of Whitman, Dos Passos, uh, uh, writers who've had run-ins with, with the law about that. But in, in the United States, the, the real landmark case for uh, the dissemination of literature uh, came uh, with uh, Ulysses in a court ruling in uh, 1934 uh, by Judge Woolsey. And it's kind of a famous one. It's interesting to go back to it because uh, before that, it could be confiscated in the mails and burned. You could get in trouble uh, for trying to disseminate Ulysses in the United States. Uh, but the judge, this was part of his ruling, fairly famous quote, um, where he says, um, and it was refer at the time it was referred to as an, as an example of enlightened and forward thinking, uh, and he says, the effect of Ulysses on the reader undoubtedly is somewhat emetic. Nowhere does it tend to be aphrodisiac. Okay, now if you look in the dictionary, emetic means, you know, it can induce vomiting. That it means, okay, so if the sex grosses you out, it's okay, is basically what he's saying. And I think, you know, that's kind of putting the bar pretty lowly, pretty low. We've we, we got a long ways to go. I think we can do better than that. We do have problems or issues about uh, representing the body and, and its functions and that sort of thing. Uh, and go forward another generation uh, to uh, another landmark case, uh, or landmark cases. And they came at about the same time in the United States, uh, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer in Britain, uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover. Both of these books uh, came out decades before, but were not broadly disseminated until the early 1960s after, after some court rulings. And this seemed, for a lot of people, uh, it really seemed to usher in a new era about artistic freedom, that you can write what you want, you don't have to worry about these taboos, and it's a sort of sensibility or, or at least a sentiment that uh, Philip Larkin spoofed in his famous poem, Annus Mirabilis. Uh, and Larkin's from, he's a little bit older, and he says, you know, sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me, between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. Okay. Now, that, there was a real sense that, okay, things are different now. We're free. There are no more excuses. We can do what we want. The third stanza of the poem, which is coming, I hope. Yes. Uh, the third stanza of the poem goes, then all at once, no more fuss. Then all at once the quarrel sank. Everyone felt the same. And every life became a brilliant breaking of the bank, a quite unlosable game. The gates are open. Pleasure. No more hang-ups. Well, is that really the way it worked? Well, not hardly. It didn't take very long. It didn't, and of course, he is 
uh, being satirical here. It didn't take very long before people were saying, no, you know, wait a minute. Uh, you know, a prominent example would be Kate Millett's sexual politics in 1970, where she uh, directly addressed writers such as uh, Lawrence and Miller and pointed out how actually uh, a lot of this writing, which in the name of liberation also contains uh, lots of elements which can be oppressive uh, to, to the other sex in the case of, of Lawrence and in the case of, of Miller, and that we have a much more complicated situation on our hands in terms of how do we handle our freedom. Now one could say fairly that, okay, but Miller and Lawrence were guys of an earlier generation and what we have is, and, and Miller is subtle about that, but what we have is a manifestation of the, of the neuroses of a certain type of male at a certain type of generation, et cetera. But what about the new writers? The new writers who are benefiting from this freedom and this ability to perhaps see more, say more, see better? Well, what happened? Let's go forward another generation from 1963 uh, where, when sexual intercourse began, uh, to, uh, say, 1993, 1993. And now I'm giving another example from the British context. And in 1993, we saw the beginning of the bad sex prize in the Literary Review. I don't know if you've heard of this. Some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. Uh, it was started by Oberon Waugh, and he was the son of the writer Evelyn Waugh that you've probably heard of, surely. Uh, and uh, Waugh was, he was, Oberon Waugh was a, a critic and curmudgeon, a bit of a wag. Uh, but he made, what well, he, in 1993, he, he died in 2001, but the, the prize still continues. Uh, he made what he called the Bad Sex Prize, and, it, and he described it as follows. When I first announced the prize, I wrote as someone who had been reviewing a novel a week for many years and complained bitterly that many were ruined by bad sex scenes, perfunctorily introduced and charmlessly described. It was as if every novelist felt obliged to include a sex scene, possibly under pressure from the publisher, under the illusion that some sex at least was necessary to sell anything. The purpose was not to reward tasteless or unskilled writing, but to discourage it. Now, uh, the bad sex prize was had some un unintended consequences or effects. The Literary Review was actually a fairly low circulation um, literary magazine, as they tend to be, uh, but the prize suddenly garnered a lot of attention. It be in, in a sh fairly short time, it snowballed, it snowballed into kind of a, a pop phenomenon where you had uh, a gala awards ceremony. And the awards presenters included people like Sting or Mick Jagger or Courtney Love. And it really uh, triggered a lot of interest uh, for the magazine. And uh, let's, let's look at, for instance, this is, you also get a period piece uh, if you look at some of the entries. You can find them on the, on the website. This was uh, one of the finalists in 1998. She sucks my tongue so hard that it's difficult to form a syllable besides which my blood rush south is so ferocious that I really have little choice other than to succumb completely. Vaguely conscious that should she guide my now throbbing Titanic into her icebergs, I would definitely be sunk. Now notice this one wasn't good enough to win. <laughs> but clearly, you know, the, what we have here is that, okay, we have... Our liberty, which is good, I'm not knocking it, but then we have to know what to do with it. And, and sometimes, well, you know, we can, we can fumble the ball. It doesn't always work out so well. Uh, and uh, 
let's, and also the prize included, you know, what do you get if you win the bad sex prize? The way the magazine uh, would give uh, a piece of uh, sculpture, abstract sculpture, which was supposed to represent sex in the 1950s. Now, uh, there's, there's something, you know, we can learn from. I mean, some, in some of the winners here, over time, you can notice, uh, uh, for instance, it's been noted that there's been a preponderance of entries nominated by women taking scenes from novels written by men. Uh, in 2007, Norman Mailer was the first posthumous winner for a scene describing the, co the conception of Hitler, and some people also suggested that he should be given a Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, although it's a joke, uh, it has also, in part at least, achieved Waugh's in original intention. Uh, the novelist Jonathan Coe is on record, and he's a well-known novelist, particularly in Britain. Uh, he's on record as saying he's nervous now about writing sex scenes because he doesn't want this kind of publicity. Uh, other, other novelists have kind of taken it in, in, in good humor, so, some of the winners, uh, though Tom Wolfe refused it because he claimed, well, he was trying to be funny. So there's, that's also an issue of whether uh, it's intentional or not. And, and in theory, they're trying to reward, reward works which aren't satire, but which are earnest desires uh, to, uh, to represent uh, previously taboo subjects. Now, now, what can we learn from this uh, besides a joke? I mean, we're here to think about craft. We're here to think about uh, writing, and, and there, there are a, a few takeaways I would, I would like to offer uh, from this beyond the, the kind of ha-ha aspect. Uh, one is that I think Waugh did have a valid point that if you, you don't have to go there. I mean, uh, you don't have to feel obliged. I mean, here, here's an example. Um, yeah, this is from Marina Levitska, uh, Two Caravans. Uh, I stumbled across, this is, wasn't included in, on their website, it's just something I stumbled across. Yola feels the dog is showing far too much enthusiasm, sticking its nose up her skirt on any excuse in a way that reminds her of, no. She's a mature and respectable woman, and there are some secrets she's not going to share with any nosy, pokey book readers. Okay. A choice there, that's even a, you know, a metafictional bringing it forward that, no, I, I just, I don't need to go there. Another thing, perhaps, another takeaway we can take from it is when I look at their, um, their finalists and stuff, there, there, there are two main tendencies I notice of what is problematic writing. Uh, one is of this sort of thing. This is from Matthew Reynolds, The World Was All Before Him. This is a fairly recent one. She stirred and her breath became a moan as endorphinergic and morphinergic mechanisms spluttered into life. Arteries dilate and tissue swells and all the beautifully adapted and various receptor neurons fire in happy harmony, making brain cells iridescent, swirl and jive. Okay. Now, this was useful for me in as much as I learned some new words, uh, <laughs> endorphinogenic, and, but, and, but this is, you know, literally kind of clinical, uh, that the, a sort of literalist realism uh, or clinical approach uh, is basically a naive realism is not going to be enough to to capture to to capture uh, to capture the moment. Though it's not all purely literalist. I mean, we do have a, a bit of metaphoric language there at the end with the swirl and jive. Uh, but uh, which brings us to the other example, which is maybe the other extreme as opposed to a, a clinical literalist approach to the writing. Uh, something like this: She has the smallest, hottest mouth as if she's storing lava in her cheeks, 
I shut my eyes, holding her hair by the roots. My bones start to liquefy. Uh, here we have kind of a, a turbocharged metaphoric language. No, bones do not liquefy. Okay. Uh, so, but, and this sort of over-the-top sort of uh, frothy faux lyricism is, is maybe the other extreme uh, where we stumble. And what happens uh, when writing about this kind of subject is that realism is not enough. Uh, neither is the resort to trying to turbocharge your language via metaphor. The hard task of writing well remains, and there are no quick fixes. No quick fixes exist. Okay, uh, make a transition now, if, if you will. You know, you have your freedom, but uh, there's hard work. You, there's hard work to use it well. Let's make a transition now to the third little story I told about uh, the Albanian mafia. Writer says, you know, do I have the right to write about that? Okay, and. It's a little weird in a sense because, oh, someone's asking me? Uh, oh, so this is what we need. We need some old white guy to, to arbitrate and settle uh, cult, the issues of cultural, uh, cultural appropriation. Uh, that said, that said, uh, I haven't, and so I, you know, I can't play the victim or pretend to be keenly informed uh, about some of these issues. That said, I haven't been totally sheltered from them uh, since I haven't lived because not living in the United States, and I haven't been there for a couple, here full-time for a couple of decades, that um, I have had the experience sometimes in my modest way of being othered or seeing my culture, what I thought was my culture, used in certain ways. And it's occasionally been perplexing. Let me give you an example. Um, is, anyone here, is anyone here a fan of Johnny? I'll repeat the question. You know, Johnny Holiday? Do you know him? Il est magnifique, huh? Extra. No, he's a, okay, so he's the guy. When I first saw him in France, I was kind of perplexed. That's actually Jean Philippe Smet, uh, Johnny Holiday. He died recently. It was a really big deal in France. Uh, sometimes he's referred to as the French Elvis. And here's a photo of Johnny when he's in his young, uh, charming Elvis days. Uh, and he went through his like Elvis, you know, he, he had his military period, and which was followed not too long afterwards by a sort of Pat Boone period, uh, which was followed by his Bob Dylan period, uh, which led a little bit later to his Buffalo Springfield Johnny. <laughs> and not long after that, we have Johnny on Carnaby Street looking very much like Austin Powers, a very fab Johnny, uh, with a little... Uh, Golden Gate Park, San Francisco hippie Johnny, uh, with a little interlude for a break in 1969 uh, to make a Western, the Solitaire, because Johnny has been in a number of Westerns. He likes Westerns, which later led to his Bowie period. Uh, this is less Ziggy Stardust than the Thin White Duke, and uh, followed by uh, the boss, uh, Johnny, and the Bon Jovi Johnny. Uh, here is Johnny doing Route 66. There was a documentary uh, about Johnny. And uh, more recently, uh, this is the hip-hop Johnny with Ministère Amère, where he collaborated with Stomy Bugsy and uh, Doc Ginico and, and other hip-hop stars. Now, uh, 
when I first <laughs> encountered Johnny, I was perplexed, and then I kind of, I felt, Ugh. And because uh, also it's, it's kind of easy when, because these are just style videos, you know, I, or photos. And you can see that about any pop stars. Uh, but I, I'm trying to, I need to remind you, it's not just fashion. The, the music often follow the different styles, this chameleon type of, of, of shift from one thing to another. Uh, and then after the kind of, ooh, then kind of irritation. Well, this guy, he's just ripping off all these people. It's, it's not... It's not the real deal. But, but over time, you know, what is the real deal? Over time, I, I confess, I had, uh, I'm not like a fan, I don't buy his records, but I do have an appreciation uh, of Johnny. He's sort of grown on, on me. After a while, I learned to realize, well, he's not the French Elvis. He is actually, he's Johnny. <laughs> he, he has made these different materials into his own after his fashion. And someone who has articulated this kind of question uh, much better than I, and perhaps about more serious issues, uh, is, a, is an essay which I like very much by uh, Henry Louis Gates. It's called Authenticity, or The Lesson of Little Tree. Some of you might have bumped into this essay before. Uh, Henry Louis Gates is a, a special specialist of history, culture, literature, uh, but he actually he starts this essay uh, while uh, talking about, excuse me, I'll just go back a bit, uh, while talking about music. This is my, which was what made me think about this in regard to Johnny. He begins his essay, he writes of a wager that was done between the black jazz trumpeter Roy Eldridge and the critic Leonard Feather. And Eldridge said that he could distinguish white musicians from black ones blindfolded. And so Feather put him to the test, and they played a game of drop the needle, testing different records. And more than half of the time, Eldridge guessed wrong. So, you know, how do you know authenticity when you hear it, or see it, or enact it? And he goes on, uh, Gates goes on to discuss this book, uh, The Education of Little Tree. This came out in 1976. It was a rather successful book, and it was billed as a true story. Uh, now I'm quoting Gates from the essay. Carter's book was written as the autobiography of Little Tree, orphaned at the age of 10, who learns the ways of Native Americans from his Cherokee grandparents in Tennessee. It sold extremely well, and, and it garnered critical praise, too. Booklist praised its natural approach to life. A reviewer for the Chattanooga Times pronounced it as deeply felt. One poet and storyteller of Abnaki descent held it as a masterpiece, one of the finest American autobiographies ever written, and that it captured the unique vision of Native American culture. It was, he wrote blissfully, like a Cherokee blanket woven out of the materials given by nature, simple and strong in its design. A critic in the Santa Fe New Mexican told his readers, I've come on something that is good, so good that I want to shout, read this. It's beautiful. It's real. Or was it? To the embarrassment of the book's admirers, the author Forrest Carter was unmasked as a pseudonym for the late Asa Earl Carter, a member of the Ku Klux Klan, a demagogue, and the secret author of George Wallace's famous speech, Segregation Now, Segregation Tomorrow, Segregation Forever. This is awkward. Now, Gates goes on to explore this, this curious story, and he talks about 
other examples in the long history of literary appropriation. And uh, he speaks at length about the history of slave narratives, and some of them were fake and written by whites, or how books that were unambig unambiguously novels, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, exerted influence on later slave narratives. Uh, he says, many authentic slave narratives were influenced by Harriet Beecher Stowe. On the other hand, authentic slave narratives were among Stowe's primary sources for her imaginative work, Uncle Tom's Cabin. By the same token, to recognize the slave narrative as a genre is to recognize that, for example, Frederick Douglass's mode of expression was informed by the conventions of antecedent narratives, some of which were, like James Williams's, whole cloth inventions. So, to say the least, it gets, quickly gets very complicated in this sort of conversation. You know, facts matter, of course, but the truth does not reside only in facts. And uh, for Gates, when he elaborates, he concludes that uh, the lesson of the literary blindfold test, remembering the thing of the drop the needle thing, right? The lesson of the literary blindfold text is not that our social identities don't matter, they do matter. And our histories, individual and collective, do affect what we wish to write and what we're able to write. But that relation is never one of forced determinism. No human culture is inaccessible to someone who makes the effort to understand, to learn, to inhabit another word, world. Now, I would like to linger particularly when looking at this on the, that last part, the words. I mean, so thus, I did tell the, the fellow in my writing group, sure, you can write about the Albanian uh, mafia, but, you know, look at that last bit. You have to make the effort to understand, to learn, to inhabit another world. You've got to do your homework. And more than do your homework, more than do your homework, and this is where a lot of the art comes in, you're going to have to use all your imaginative powers of empathy to occupy that other, that other person to the extent possible. It's not only going to be the facts. Now, in another recent context, this was happening just last summer, you might have heard about the, the controversy at, the, at a Whitney, at an exhibition at the Whitney concerning uh, a painting of Emmett Till, uh, who, was, who was murdered during the Civil Rights Movement. And Zadie Smith did an interesting essay on that in Harper's, and here's just a poll quote. Uh, I think it's worth um, lingering on, too. Art is a traffic in symbols and images. It's never been politically or historically neutral. And I do not find discussions on appropriation and representation to be in any way trivial. Each individual example has to be thought through. And we have every right to include such considerations in our evaluation of art and also to point out the often dubious neutrality of a supposedly pure aesthetic criteria. But when arguments of appropriation are linked to a racial essentialism no more sophisticated than antebellum miscegenation laws, well then, we head quickly into absurdity. Here again, the phrase I would like to linger on is thought through. You can't plunge when you're writing about someone rather different from yourself. You can't plunge into that without a lot of caution, thought, and reflection. So uh, this freedom to go beyond that taboo uh, brings with it you know, a heavy dose of responsibility. But G Gates' uh, parting shot in his essay uh, is, you know, what then of the vexed concept of authenticity, to borrow from Samuel Goldwyn's theory of sincerity, authenticity remains essential once you can fake that. 
you got it made. Now, this is definitely something more than glib, and it did give me um, some pleasure, actually, when looking into some of this information that I wonder it's quite possible that Gates misattributes this quote because there's an earlier source of someone who apparently said the same thing. It doesn't come from Hollywood, Samuel, Golden, Samuel Goldwyn. Uh, there's a, actually this French guy, <laughs> Jean Giraudoux, uh, seems to have said it before Goldwyn did. But the point remains, with the sincerity, once you can fake that, you've got it made. Thank you.